When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I am Sam Abu Al Samad. So it's episode 19 this week, and as the uh, Automotive News uh, Engineer Engineering Awards come in, I've been watching Twitter about that, which is fascinating. It's going to give us a bunch of stuff to talk about in upcoming episodes. Um, but we have we have some things this week to talk about, uh, and of course we'll start with the, the garage or the driveway. And uh, I'll go first because I have the most hotly anticipated vehicle in my driveway uh, this year. No, that's not true. But I you, have, you, you got you got yourself a um, you, you managed to find a, a supercharged Toyota Previa all wheel drive. That would be cool. This is not <laughs> that. No. <laughs> Um, I've got you know, a, a supercharged mid-engine all-wheel drive minivan. I mean, yeah, it could be better. The Previa was cool. The only thing that was cooler than the Previa was the previous Toyota vans, which I don't know what I forget what they were called in the Japanese market. Here they were just like the Toyota van, but yeah. um, they were super neat. Uh, but no, I have a current Toyota van. I have a Sienna Limited all-wheel drive. And in the past, I have recommended the Sienna as the best minivan sort of for your money of of the crop. Um, That past was before the Chrysler Pacifica came out. That is currently, in my opinion, the leading minivan. Uh, It just does everything very well. It's very well thought out. It looks great. It's uh, very comfortable. It drives excellent. And the Sienna was my former top pick. It's still good, but uh, boy, does it feel old now? <laughs> All of a sudden, well, you know, it's it, it's you know at this point, um, you know, especially with the new Odyssey coming in the next few weeks. Uh, in fact, they're doing a the media drives uh, beginning of May. Uh, the Sienna is actually the oldest of the current crop of minivans, you know, and it's it'll be due for a redesign probably in the next year or two. Uh, but, uh, just, you know, before you go on and describing it, uh, I just, uh, <laughs> consulted, uh, Wikipedia, the fount of all uh, human knowledge and the predecessor of the Previa, uh, in the Japanese market was known as the town ace and the master ace surf master ace. That's what I recall. And you could get the master able, well, the master ace serve was the, uh, the all wheel drive one, right? Uh, probably. Yeah. yeah. You get them in, in the U S market with like the cool little refrigerator in them. And yeah, they were just super neat um toyota does not make quirky vehicles like that any longer no at least not for north america no that's not so much not so much in japan anymore either but um anyway 
The Sienna I, I, is definitely I, I, not for eruption. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, very conventional. You know, and it, it's funny that we say it's old because it's not really even that old. It dates back to what 2011. Uh, I, I think so. Yeah, that's that is starting to get old now. Now that I think about it, that's six years old. Twenty ten. Uh, yeah, twenty ten. Oh, it goes back that far. Yeah, um, that is kind of a long time on the market. Um, you know, and the reason why I recommended it in the past was because I feel like it has the best balance for what minivan buyers are looking for. Um, the Odyssey certainly drives fantastic, even though it's being replaced. The current Odyssey is really good to drive. It drives like an Accord, it, which is, you know, it's got a little bit of sportiness in it. That's not really what I want in a minivan. And I don't think that's what most people want in a minivan. The The Toyota is a little bit squishier a little bit softer, quieter, more relaxed driving demeanor. Um, And I think, you know, its tech is decent enough to use where the Honda's just made me want to punch the dash the whole time I was (laughs) driving it. Um, And, you know, it's, it's very spacious and it does all as many vans are want to be. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes it's weird, right? You'll have a van like say the, the Nissan quest or the, uh, the Kia Sedona where they're big, but, their space utilization it's not it's not the best um and they they have like these quirks where it's like the way the seats configure and stuff you go did, did they actually try to use this because this is weird you can't I, the things that you want to do with it you can't because of the the limitations of how it's designed um the sienna is not one of those vehicles it's it's really it's a good all-arounder and it does have all-wheel drive which is handy uh here in the northeast where we still get snow um and occasionally we get great uh springtime april fool's day storms um so i was all psyched to take this we had a a dance competition for one of my kids and so it was outside of hartford which is about 80 miles from here i guess um so i was like oh cool we got the van we're good to go it's gonna be comfy we can put the dog in it and everything well it like snowed and iced and did all kinds of crap on Friday. And while it's all wheel drive, it did not have winter tires on it. So, I, oh, yeah, I was like, so you were able to spin all four tires with ease. I just left it home oh. <laughs> and I took the Jeep and I did like 40 miles an hour and it took us two hours to get there. And we saw a bunch of accidents and somebody just in Worcester um, where. So if you've ever driven through Worcester, the highway just does s curves because back in the day uh when they were doing their their urban planning i know we're getting off track here but uh, it's it's a fascinating story trust that's me. something we that's something we do frequently right so um there's holy cross uh is i think it's college of the holy cross um in worcester and it's right the highway that goes through there is is uh route 290 and uh back in the 50s i believe it was bishop brosnahan because uh, it's right by Brosnahan Square. This is super New Englandy. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, he refused to split his campus for the highway. And because it was Bishop Brosnahan with the, you know, the College of the Holy Cross, he won. And so <laughs> 290 does this giant, like, double reverse S-curve through Worcester. Um, yeah. So anyway, we saw a Corolla just, like, completely spin out. Uh, they did, like, a 720 uh, right in front of us. I saw it, like 
just about beginning to happen and i was going slow already but i just backed off a was it one more. of those really slow motion spins it was it was like where it uh, seems like it goes on for about 10 minutes yeah yeah and they like they were so lucky they didn't hit anything they they just spun out and you know scrubbed off all their speed and just came to a stop and then like took them a second and they just moved over to the shoulder <laughs> And I was like, oh, they're checking their pants because um, this that, that kind of it's terrifying to be behind the wheel. And then, you know, a few miles later, they come back past us again. I was like, man, they still they have not learned. You, just, you cannot go that fast in this weather unless you're equipped for it. And they were clearly not equipped for it. So anyway, I did not take the Sienna, but it had the Sienna been equipped with winter tires. I'm sure it would have been super solid and great. The, the uh, stuff that's good about it uh, is that. It's again, it's it's pretty comfortable. It's got plenty of power. It's got lots of room and uh, lots of features. And this is the limited. So it's as cushy as Toyota makes it without sort of encroaching on Lexus territory. That's one of the areas where it's not that cushy. Um, <laughs> the They call it the limited, but man, the Pacifica is nice. This is not quite as nice. Um <clears throat> You mean in terms of materials, fit yeah. and finish, that sort of thing? Materials, fit and finish, ergonomics are not as good. Uh, and, the, you know, just like the design is is not as uh, is not as functional. You know, I started searching around for a few things. Uh, it seems like there's there's controls that are hidden and stuff that weren't quite as well thought out. And I'm sure that this is going to be all updated and cleaned up. But the last crop of Camrys and vans and even like the highlander you know it seems like the last and they've they fixed some of this um but there was there's a point in time where they just they came out with these cars with interiors that were just poorly designed where the dash didn't seem like it integrated with the doors and the, the ergonomics were weird and this this sienna is is still one of those you know the dash is this big sort of square <laughs> thing and they've tried to gussy it up you know it was covered with some some leather or pleather and it was stitched and stuff but it was it just not. not well, it's nice. I mean, it's the it's the last of that kind of previous generation of Toyotas, you know, which kind of coincided with um, just as Akio Toyota was coming in and you know taking over as CEO. So you know, it it was designed. It was really designed before um, he took over the the reins, and you know. It, it was tip, very typical of Toyotas of, of the previous decade where um, there was nothing exciting about it. And, you know, there, and like you say, there were a lot of odd quirks, you know, sometimes with the, some of the controls and the ergonomics. Um, but, uh, you know, I think aside from the Prius, most newer Toyotas um, have kind of moved away from that to a more conventional layout and uh, especially, you know, the new Camry, you know, I think we'll um, I think we'll see a lot of influence from that one in the next generation. Sienna, probably probably sometime next year. That's good. And, you know, hopefully they've injected a little bit of 86 in all their cars, too. You know, the, the driving dynamics are, I think, what really kills it. Um, this is just and, and everybody says this about Toyotas, but this is so dull to drive <laughs> um, and the steering is numb yet there's this dead spot on center where um i started dreaming about you know ways to add caster angle to it so it would just <laughs> just track straight ahead damn it <laughs> you know like um 
That because that so cars that just lock onto straight ahead generally they have a lot of caster angle. Like BMWs have about twice the mm-hmm. caster angle that most most other cars do. Um, and the the reason why is because that 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 will encourage the front wheels to just straighten out like a shopping cart. Those are casters. Uh, you increase that angle where they tilt backward, and the, the wheels will just naturally pull pull straight. Uh, Toyotas, especially older Toyota, like when I first started doing this thing, this auto journalism thing, Toyotas used to be all over the road. They would just constantly require these little steering inputs when you just, you know, just want to go down the highway, man. Uh, this, this one still does it. The Sienna still does it. Um, and it's gotten better, uh, as, as Toyotas have sort of gone through their generations. And and again, I think you're right. Uh, the, the arrival of Akio Toyota helped put a little bit more passion in some of the cars and, um, you know, certainly I don't expect the steering to load up in the middle of a corner and give me all kinds of direct feedback to the road and all. I mean, it things. is it is a, you know, a minivan. It's a family hauler. Yes. So although I will yeah, say the he, Odyssey does that stuff, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. surprising. Um, but it, and, but you not know, everybody wants that, though. Right. And I, I think that's my my uh, point I was getting at, getting toward as I ramble here is uh, it's tuned for the people who who want it to be dull they don't they don't want the van to not be dull um and there is there they did make a little ect power uh option available so that the engine would not be so sluggish because there's just like this giant dead spot in the accelerator right off uh idle you know you pull away from a light and then you're like why am i still doing 20 (laughs) um and it's it's you know electronic throttle mapping and transmission points and stuff so you can switch it but I have definitely expended my time <laughs> talking about the, uh, the, the Sienna. Um, so we'll talk about what you, you are driving. But first, I want to say, like, A, I heard you on Marketplace this evening, and it was the weirdest thing because I was commuting, and all of a sudden your voice comes out of the radio. And I was like, <laughs> it's Sam. Um, and you were, you were on Marketplace uh, talking from your, your position of power at Navigant. <laughs> <laughs> about tesla which is just cool and that you've been making the rounds so so people can can catch you out in other uh you know media outlets yeah i've, I've been a little busy today there's a, a couple of people that wanted to talk to me about uh, uh my latest uh work product from naving it but we'll we'll get back to that a little bit later yeah um, that's your tease <laughs> yeah but uh my my next uh or what i've been what i was driving until uh saturday morning uh was the 2017 bmw 530i uh which you know of course you know the 5 series is bmw's midsize sedan you know they've they've got three you know three main sedan lines you've got the the 3 series which is the heart you know the heart and soul of of bmw i mean that's where that's the bulk of their car volume um, although <clears throat> SUVs are rapidly overtaking cars at BMW, just as they are everywhere else. Um, and then of course, at the top end, you've got the seven series, um, you know, for, you know, the three, you know, the three's always been kind of on the tight side, especially in the back seat. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely a smaller sedan, the seven, you know, for a lot of people, you know, I mean, it's, it's a big car, you know, it doesn't drive as big as it is, but it's a big car. You know, and then the five is, you know, that kind of sweet spot in the middle for, you know, if you actually, you know, if you have a family and you want to haul a couple of kids around or, you know, other other people around on a regular basis and be more comfortable. Um, and the five is all new this year. Um, the design is very much 
evolutionary right. from you, the never know previous it. one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the the main the main visual difference really um, is in the front. You know, where they it no longer has the the body colored um, or the you know the the main color. Uh, bodywork around the twin kidney grills you know it's it's adopted the same look as the three series and the x5 where the headlights now butt right up against the chrome surrounds on the grills um and then you know you've got small vents behind the front wheels uh just like the seven series has other than that it's it looks very much like the previous generation which there's nothing wrong with that right i I was just gonna say it's it's a handsome car yeah Uh, and this is it's so it is beyond the the way the looks have stayed the same though this is a significant uh new five it's a new platform as well it's the yeah. G, g30 right versus the outgoing whatever the hell it was f something it was a f70 i think yeah or was that the, maybe or maybe that was the three series they went through know. the f's really quick by the way like it, it, bmw had e's for like 25 years yeah and <laughs> now we're well i think i think they skipped a few numbers on the f's but um at any rate um, the 530, you know, is the the baseline five series, at least here in North America. And so it's got um, like like all of its competitors. It's got a two liter GTDI four cylinder engine, 248 horsepower, which is a you know, it's a fabulous engine. And, you know, it's like like all the engines in this segment now, um, it you know, it's got lots of low end torque you know, it feels feels strong. Uh, and for a car that weighs about 3,700 pounds, it's, you know, it's got plenty of grunt. So that's, perf- that's surprisingly light. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Well, I mean, even the previous one was actually um, reasonably lightweight. Uh, yeah. It, it, uh, I think they cut about a hundred pounds overall uh, from the previous generation. It's got more aluminum in it, more magnesium and more high strength steels. And like everything else, of course, you know, it's got more features on it. So that, that adds pounds back on. Uh, I can't remember what the, how much they took out of the structure. You know, it was definitely more than a, considerably more than a hundred pounds, but they offset that by putting more stuff in there. Um, one of the, you know, um, one of the features that it, the five series is, has adopted from the seven series is the new gesture control system. Oh yeah, um, the last time I had a seven, I completely I shut that off right away. Which I guess yeah. is the not the point of being a car reviewer. So I'm I'm sorry. Please send me. No, you're you're supposed you're, su- you're, su- you're supposed to use all that stuff, I, you know, so you can I tell know. people whether it's worth actually spending their money on. I know, but I'm cranky, and so I'm like, ah, technology. <laughs> Who needs it? Yeah. Well, you know, the the funny thing is, I mean, it's it's an interesting concept, and I think someday when we get to you know, autonomous electric cars where you no longer have to have the dashboard right in front of you there because you can move all that stuff away because you don't have a powertrain in front of you. Things like that will will actually make a lot of sense. And, you know, putting it in the car now probably is a good way to gauge people's reactions and, and develop the technology. But as far as actually being useful right now, it's not. Well, that's <laughs> you know? that's that's why I don't like it. It feels like such a gimmick. It's like those scenes in movies where the actors stand in front of this giant glass panel and they've got, you know, they're, they're typing in thin air. And then, you know, in, in the special effects, we put in all kinds of stuff, buttons they're touching and stuff. That's such nonsense. Um, and the, they, they just won an award, by the way. I, um, if it's uh, Bosch that they developed it with, Bosch just won an award. Uh, no, that was Delphi. Oh, was it Delphi? Okay, so. Yeah, Delphi did that gesture control system. Um, so I saw there was an award from Automotive News or the Tech Awards that I'm following on Twitter. 
uh, <laughs> they they won for the gesture controls. So I thought that was cool. Like it is it's it's new tech and it's a new way of interacting with the vehicle. I just personally I'm I'm not in with anything. I don't really use gesture controls. I, I shut off the extra gestures on my my laptop touchpad. I don't use too many on the the iPad and stuff like so. I am a um I'm a Luddite, apparently. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, for, for for those out there that don't know how the gesture system works, you know, there's there's a little camera mounted in the between the two central vents in the dashboard. And you basically there's about four or five different gestures that you can do with your hand uh, to do certain kinds of commands. Like, for example, you can stick out your index finger and twirl your twirl your finger in a circle, you know, clockwise will turn the volume up counterclockwise will turn the volume down which is fine except that when you're doing that your hand is about two inches away from the volume knob <laughs> this, this, this seems to so you know yeah. why bother it, right it's it, like the elegance of 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 this is like function preceding function it's just <laughs> I, I mean i know that they have to put it in there and sort of you know let people be the beta testers and figure out what they like what they don't like iDrive sort of started the same way, right? We're all used to that now, but man, we, everybody hated it when it was in the, in that first, uh, seven series. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, iDrive is great. Yeah. This is actually a really good system now. Uh, you know, the, the, the new five, you know, has a, has a new, uh, user, you know, graphical interface, uh, for the iDrive system. I think it's iDrive six they're up to now. Uh, you know, so it actually works quite well for the most part. It's still not, I mean, there, there's a lot of functionality in those menus. And so sometimes you have to drill down quite a bit to find what you're looking for. But overall, it's it's definitely improved. And I, you know, I generally prefer the central controller setups to a touchscreen. But the 5 Series also has a touchscreen. So if you like that, yeah, and this, this is a trend we're seeing in a lot of vehicles, especially in the premium segments, multimodal controls. So they'll give you a touchscreen and a central controller. And in this case, gesture controls. And you can choose you can control it however you want. Well, and I think that's really smart. Uh, obviously, in a mm -hmm. premium segment, it's easier to do that because each of those components adds you know, expense and complexity and, and time to develop. So it's that that's something that's it's going to proliferate among premium cars before everybody else. But it, it, you know, especially with BMW owners, they don't want friction in using their cars. And I, I know that's kind of a trendy term, but if, if they have set up multiple ways for the car to accept input, you know, the, the person who likes the iDrive controller can pick that the person who just, you know, it seems the most logical to reach out and touch the screen and to have that actually work when they do it. Like that's, that's going to please the owner. It's going to uh, help people appreciate BMWs. And it's a very smart move for them to, to just make the car easy to operate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the, uh, one of the other uh, features of this car, unfortunately, my, my time driving the car was cut short by a couple of days um, because uh, on Saturday morning, as I was driving home, um, all of a sudden, the um, a warning, big warning popped up on the, the um, display saying low tire pressure, please uh, pull over slowly now. And <laughs> so, you know, not not wanting to uh, take a chance. I, I did that. And, you know, I was in a I was out in the rural area north of town here uh, and, uh, you know, there was nobody around. So I, I pulled over to the side of the road 
and um, went through the menus and, and checked the uh, the tire pressures. You know, the, the like most like a lot of new cars today, um, the five series, you know, will show you the individual pressures at each tire um, instead of just giving you one icon that says low tire pressure and you have no idea which one it is. So it, it, I saw that the front, the right front tire had zero pressure. I got out, took a look at it. Couldn't see anything obviously wrong. Pressed my finger against the tread and it was very much uh, no pressure in there. And so um, I got back in the car and uh, I called up um, BMW's roadside assistance through their uh, BMW connected telematics system. Um, Explained what was going on. And they said, yeah, this car has run flat tires on it and I could drive up to 50 miles at up to 50 miles an hour. And since my house was only 12 miles from where I was at that point, I figured, okay, I'll give it a shot. And uh, so I drove home uh, at about 30, 35 miles an hour all the way. And um, by the time I got home, there was, in fact, a, a very large chunk uh, uh, coming, making its way loose from the sidewall of the tire. Uh, so, you know, this tire was definitely well beyond repair at that point. But it did manage to get me home, uh, which was a good thing because there was no spare tire or even an inflator in the car. That's a pretty common trend. And I know you wrote this up uh, for Forbes to to just discuss some of the, the highs and lows of this. Um, it, it's really hard to find a space in these cars for a spare tire and, and wheel, especially since a lot of the cars have just enormous tire and wheel packages now. I mean, the the, yeah. tr the trunk of this five series is it's pretty big. Actually, it's 19 cubic feet. That's a that's a decent. Yeah, size it trunk. is. It is. Yeah. You know, uh, and I mean, one of the you know, one of the issues you and like, for example, on this car, um, it's got staggered wheel sizes. So it's got bigger wow. tires in the front than it does in the back. Yeah. And, you know, even on uh, even on more mainstream cars, you know, having 19, 20 inch wheels, you know, on a family sedan um, or, you know, an SUV is not at all un unusual anymore. Uh, so, you know, having a place to pack those wheels um is you know it's it's hard to package those things yeah i mean Plus, you've got to make the the trunk floor is going to come up by what you know it's a, it's a 20 by 7 20 by 8 inch wheel something yeah. like that depending on how wide it is so that that's you know it goes in the trunk floor it's got to raise the trunk floor by that much like that's that's no you're not going to have a 19 cubic foot trunk with a 20 inch spare wheel under there you know Right. And, you know, on hybrids, um, you know, you've t a lot. Oftentimes they'll package the battery pack uh, where the spare tire well would go. So that eliminates that space. So most almost all hybrids don't have a spare tire, but even a lot of non hybrids, you know, don't have a spare anymore because, you know, between the even with a mini spare, you know, the combination of a mini spare and the jack and, and all the other associated stuff um, that can add, you know, 30 to 40 pounds to the weight of a car. And when you consider that, you know, the test weight classes, you know, when, when they do the EPA certification, uh, when they put the car on the dyno, you know, they set up the dyno based on, on uh, the, the weight of the vehicle, you know, to figure out the resistance to, to simulate what you would be getting on the road. And, um, you know, instead of, you know, for the settings that they have, you know, they have, they have bins of, of test weights, you know, so for most car clot, car segments, you know, it's usually about hundred, hundred pound seg, uh, intervals. Um, and you know, if you've got a car that's within 25 or 30 pounds of, you know, the bottom of that bin, you know, if you get, if you ditch the spare tire and, and put an inflator kit in there, 
all of a sudden you can drop down a test weight class and you know that's like dropping 100 pounds off the car for testing purposes at least and then um, you know that can that can often buy you one sometimes two miles per gallon uh, on your EPA label values. That's no joke, especially when uh, on a performance car too. Or, or you you that can be the the difference between a gas guzzler tax and not. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. You know, obviously this this five series that you were in that two liter is pretty efficient, uh, even for its its power. I mean, that's the same yeah, engine that's in the right? uh in the mini cooper or the the cooper s yeah yeah, yeah. So it's the, just it's too it's, it's actually a little it's it's yeah it's a higher higher output version but it's it's yeah basically the same engine uh i think in the minis it's about 230 225 or 230 horsepower yeah uh, and you get 248 in this one but yeah you get better packaging for the exhaust and everything in this one versus the uh uh the mini right which that probably helps uncork the um the, the power just a little bit more. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that was a pretty efficient car uh, overall. Yeah. I mean, size. it's, you know, it's rated at 27 miles per gallon combined. That's really good um, for, it's yeah, that for big. And you know, that's a big car. Yeah. You know, it's, it's actually bigger than, you know, some of the early seven series were, you know, back in the eighties. So yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's quite good. And, you know, it's got auto stop start um, and, current you know the current generation auto stop start systems are actually really good you know they're they're pretty seamless uh when they shut the engine off and turn it back on again uh i i know you know bmw was one of the first manufacturers to introduce auto stop start uh here in north america on non-hybrid vehicles and some of those early systems were pretty bad i mean you know <laughs> there's a reason why people hated those those things because you know, you'd get this shutter when the engine shut down and then another shutter when it started back up and it was slow. You know, the, the new ones are much, much better. Yeah, there are um, some cars that still have... Start right up. Yeah, there, there's some that still have yeah. systems like that. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some out there, but most of them are getting pretty good and, and the newer ones are, are definitely pretty close to seamless. You know, uh, the, you know the, the startups, you know, aren't going to be instantaneous. So, you know, you want to switch it off if you're going to the drag strip. But other than that, for for any normal driving, they're fine. You won't even really notice it most of the time. Yeah, yeah, I think you get you get used to it. I was it's funny. I was next to a uh, Porsche Cayman this morning in traffic, and I was like, "Man, that thing's quiet." And then I realized it's probably auto stop start. And then he, uh, we all started moving, and he take, you know takes his foot off the the brake, and you hear it fire up, and off he goes. And I was like, "PDK you wimp! <laughs> <laughs> Why would you have a Cayman in a PDK?" Yeah, it takes all the fun out of it. Um, but yeah, also uh, the five thirty is it's automatic only, which I mean, I guess that's fine. Yes. but that makes me. Dumb. Yeah, you you can't you can't really you can't get a manual in the new five series anymore. Um, I don't know if they'll put one in the uh, in the next generation M five or not. Probably not. No. Uh, they're yeah, they've generally been moving away from them. Um, in fact, on, I think on the last generation M five. The manual was actually, amazingly enough, only available in North America. In Europe, they didn't even bother with it. Well, because Europeans like the sort of race-inspired transmissions more. I guess I'm grossly generalizing, but that's my my take on it is, you know, I mean, you've seen all the exotic car makers transition to the, the automated gearboxes that they're not automatics, but they're they're definitely not manuals either. You know, they're, they're certainly more like race car transmissions and 
Uh, um, there's, there's one other thing I want to talk about, about this car. And it's, it's not exclusive to this one, but you know, um, this, this one had the driver assist two plus uh, package on it or plus two or something, whatever what they call in, it. What does that include? That's, that's the, that's the, that's the, the highest end uh, ADAS system, the driver assist systems. So that's, you know, you get um, your adaptive cruise control with forward collision warning and uh, pedestrian detection. Um, it's got uh lane following system, uh, your blind spot monitors and all that. Um, what was interesting about it, um, you know, the lane following system, you know, it's, Unlike a lot, you know, I mean, a lot of the lane keeping systems that you can get today, um, they will, you know, they'll give uh, if you start drifting out of the lane, uh, it'll give you a little nudge back in the lane, but it doesn't really actively try to keep the car centered in the lane. And this system on on the five series actually does try to do that. It, it's not perfect. Um, you know, you can. You can feel it wandering a little bit, but you know it, it doesn't come close to like bouncing off the the lane markers on one side and the other. You know, so it's it's just you can feel a little bit, of, just a little bit of drift, but it's it's pretty comfortable. But the the key to it is, um, you know, it's it's using the camera, the forward looking camera, to detect the lane markers. And like virtually every system I've tried from every manufacturer, it just cannot do it reliably enough and this is this they you know they really need to get this sorted out before we can get to higher levels of automation um because you know i mean this was a you know saturday morning you know it was a bright sunny day um perfectly clear there wasn't no rain no snow the road was clear and it just could not consistently detect the lane markings when it did detect the lane markings this lane centering system, you know, like I said, worked, worked pretty well. And you were, you know, I was able to drive, you know, just with a couple of fingertips, you know, just, you know, to give it a little nudge every once in a while to say, Hey, yeah, I'm still here. Uh, but other than that, it was able to pretty much track on its own when I was driving East West, when I was driving North South, it almost could not detect the lane markings at all. So basically if the sun was shining from the side, and reflecting off the lane, the lane markings, they became almost invisible to the camera. But if it was either in front of me or behind me, it worked reasonably well. So that's like a contrast thing, right? Even with the whatever image processing they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems to be. And I'm, I think it, I'm pretty sure it's a Mobileye system that's in there. You know, and Mobileye, of course, is the, the company that was uh, bought by Intel for $15 billion dollars. Um, you know, and they specialize in, um, image processing, uh, and they, you know, they do the vast majority of the lane keeping systems that are out on the market today. Um, you know, and you know, they've, they've got a lot of good technology, but honestly, it's just, it's none of, none of them from any manufacturer I've tried are nearly reliable enough to be used really for, um, autonomous systems. And this one was no exception. Huh? It'll, it'll get better uh there's i i certainly hope so know, there's things they're gonna put in place like uh vehicle to vehicle and vehicle to infrastructure so yeah. wait well you know years and <laughs> yeah i mean ne next year you know in 2018 they're going to be launching their next generation system right now they're on their iq3 uh 2018 they're going to bring out uh the iq4 uh their next generation uh processor and and software um maybe that one will be significantly more robust 
Uh, but as it is today, um, you know, these things, you know, from, like I say, from any company, it's not, it's not, this is not something unique to BMW. Um, and, and uh, nor even to Mobileye. I mean, even other systems I've tried are just not reliable enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it, it makes me think immediately about, um, you know, if it can't handle differences in lighting conditions, what's it going to do in, in, in weather when the lane markings disappear? Uh, obviously, that's the argument is like that that is not the appropriate time to be letting the car drive itself. <laughs> um so there, there well, is that though you know i mean if if we get to a point in time where you know uh all the you know everything's being done by autonomous vehicles and you've got vehicles that don't have a steering wheel or pedals like what ford is uh promote you know what ford has said they're going to build in 2021 and you know other manufacturers are going in the same direction then um that's going to be you know it's going to have to work in those conditions yeah and I think there's a lot of pieces that need to go in, into place before that happens. You know, it's one thing to have the cars doing all the processing on their own and uh, each car is an island unto itself. But as we saw with the latest uh, Tesla, I mean, not Tesla, uh, latest Uber incident um, in Arizona, where the all the news frothed the mouth because an Uber car got in an accident. Like, th- that's not really the big deal. Um, the The big deal is that it's a simple situation that an experienced driver would be able to recognize and back off. Uh, and yet because it was something that the algorithm couldn't make heads or tails of, or, or you know, just the, the software wasn't refined enough. Um, the car <laughs> managed to just sort of go through an intersection at about 40 miles an hour and wind up in a, you know, the yeah, left hand driver. Crash. Apparently ran a yellow light. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, you know, people do that all the time. But, you know, typically, you know, when humans do it, hopefully, you know, you take a glance and you know, see if it's clear, see if anybody's coming prematurely from the other direction before you do it. Uh, although, of course, that doesn't always happen. Yeah, well, and, and in this situation, I think one of the, the complicating factors was that there was a line of traffic stopped that blocked the view of the car that caused the accident, which was actually turning left across oncoming traffic. But that driver could also not see the Uber car back a ways either. So it's just, again, it's one of those things where an experienced driver would just say, hey, I can't see past that line of cars. This is, you know, one of those kind of intersections. I'm going to slow down a little bit. Uh, Instead, it went blasting through at like 30 something miles an hour. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, and, you know, I mean, we've talked about this before a bit. I think, you know, the one of the issues with sensors, with relying on the sensors, whether it's cameras or LIDAR uh, or radar or ultrasonic sensors, any, any of these types of sensors are limited to line of sight. You know, if you can't see through the car in front of you, neither can those sensors. Right. Um, and, you know, so, you know, you're anything that's directly around you, you know, the sensors will be able to detect that but they can't see down the road past other objects that are, that are blocking the view just as we can't as humans. Uh, But, you know, if you add vehicle to vehicle communications, now the vehicles can communicate to each other beyond line of sight about their position, their direction and their speed. And so now you can calculate, you know, am I on a potential collision course with this other vehicle? And you can avoid that, um, you know, 
I mean, if you do it right, hopefully you can uh, either avoid or at least um, reduce speed and, and mitigate the impact. Um, and, you know, we've seen this now on numerous occasions. I mean, this is one example where V2V might have helped, um, you know, the, the fatal Tesla crash last year is another one um, The when a, the Google self-driving car ran into a bus in Mountain View. Same thing. All of those were situations where um, you either there was either something that the sensors could not detect for whatever reason, whether it was beyond, you know, whether it was beyond line of sight or it was a situation like what I was just describing with the, the BMW uh, lane keeping where the sensors just could not reliably detect, you know, because of challenging lighting conditions, uh, the, the sensors just could not reliably detect what was there and could not deal with it appropriately. Yeah, you know, it's to me there's a lot of parallels with um the sort of live broadcasting. Bear with me cuz I'm just putting it in my own frame of reference I suppose, but when you're dealing with a live broadcast, if you've got a live shot uh or a live interview say on the radio from somewhere, uh you've got a couple of different you've got backups, right? So you've got your main thing which let's say okay, the main sensor that the the car uses is the camera because you know, it's, it's fast and it, it's just, it, it's the, the way that they've, whatever it's their preference. Um, cool. That's sort of like analogous to like your best sounding audio feed, your, your bonded cellular or ISDN or whatever you want to call it, but you've got a fail safe as well. You've got like that fallback. So when you, you lose a connection there, you know, it drops back to just a, a straight, you know, cellular connection or uh you know we call it pots it's a plain old telephone service uh so you lose a little bit of fidelity but you know the, the mission critical problem of like staying on the air is still there uh, you know so that it seems to me that we're we're only really using sort of one facet it's a very tortured metaphor i know uh but it's like a a, a single faceted approach versus a multifaceted approach um and i guess you can't really have a single no that's uh, yeah well i mean that i mean that's actually a, you know a really good analogy for um autonomous cars you know and that's why you know most manufacturers are you know are going in the direction of having you know multiple layers of sensors um that you know, because every one of these sensors has its strengths and weaknesses and the types of things it can detect and and what kinds of conditions it can detect in uh, you know so you know radar for example can can see well through fog uh whereas a camera cannot so you know um uh, the more the more inputs you have you know which includes the sensors but it also you know includes the the communications coming into the vehicle to give you you know that longer distance view of what might be going on uh excuse me along your trajectory um that makes the the more of that you can add to it it makes the whole thing more robust you know and so you have you're you're less vulnerable to a single point of failure yeah well and there's you know, it makes a lot of sense. You know, you think about airplanes, right? Every airplane has a transponder, which identifies it to other airplanes and to air traffic control. And that's hugely important, obviously, if you're dealing with things that fly around in three dimensions. Uh, cars seems like it's a little easier. And certainly there's personal privacy issues that have to be sorted out and just reliability and, and you know, how the cars are going to talk to each other. But it's honestly, technically... It doesn't strike me as a big deal to, to, you know, make all the cars talk to each other into infrastructure. Doesn't 
doesn't no seem i mean like and actually you know it's it's not at all i mean the, the the hardware is actually pretty straightforward it's well developed now and you know you've got um standards for the the messaging protocols for how these things talk to each other uh there's sae standards for that um you know they've been working you know in the industry as a whole has been working on this for for a decade and so they've got it all got all that stuff sorted out now cadillac is shipping it on the the updated CTS uh, Toyota has been shipping it on a couple of models in Japan since late 2015. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to see a bunch more vehicles uh, coming pretty soon with this capability. And, you know, there, um, the, where it's more problematic is the infrastructure part of it. You know, if you want to do vehicle to infrastructure communications, um, putting in roadside units, um, you know, there, there's a, a more significant cost for that associated with that and a lot of municipalities don't have the the funding to do that um you know so they're fig trying to figure this out you know trying to figure out how what's the best way to do this and you know it's probably going to come down to public private partnerships which um having mentioned that uh, it's a good point good time for me to put a little plug um <laughs> next week i'm going to be in new york for the new york auto show and uh in conjunction with the show they're doing the empire state of mobility conference uh and i'll be on a panel there with uh somebody from um with steve gursky from uh formerly vice chairman of gm and uh and oh, somebody nice. from zipcar yeah. uh talking about public private partnerships and mobility awesome i mean it's it halfway hilarious that that um is happening in manhattan because if you've ever tried to drive in and out of manhattan um, oh that's a nightmare yeah uh, but, it, but, it but i mean okay. you know that's one of the places where they need to figure out some mobility solutions yeah. um you know and and the thing is um you know different different cities it's not necessarily going to be the same solution in every city. You know, you've got to tailor the solutions to to the different areas. Like, for example, here in Detroit, um, you know, uh, Detroit's got very different problems to deal with than Manhattan or San Francisco or Singapore yeah, or I mean, London. Detroit's so spread um, out compared to how dense New York is in terms of population. Density. Yeah. You know, I mean, the city of Detroit you know, is 137 square miles um, and you know, it used to have a population of close to 2 million, you know, now it's a little under 700,000. Uh, so there's, there's large swaths of the city that are extremely low density right now and other areas that are considerably higher density, you know, now that a lot of people are starting to move back into the city. So, you know, they've got, and, and, you know, the demographics of the city are different. So you've got different problems that you, you have to come up with different kinds of solutions that are tailored to the community. Um, so what works in Manhattan not going to work in detroit or or chicago or, or san francisco well, and, and um the the kind of projects in the past that have you know the you describe them as mobility now but we used to talk about light rail a lot um it's hugely expensive and by the time you finish uh -huh. it it's obsolete and then there's upkeep on it too you know i i expect that uh the the newer mobility technology is going to make a lot more actual mobility possible at a much lower cost so so hopefully you know it, it we're we're hearing chatter of a renaissance of cities to a certain degree and, and hopefully this kind of stuff can can continue to you know be a player and, and drive that uh to a degree um but you know talking about all the sensors and the the autonomous tech uh, it's kind of a good time to, to segue into um, something that 
you actually were were an author on uh, this week was the Navigant Research uh, Autonomous Driving uh, Leaderboard. Uh, I don't think I I think yeah. I mangled the title, but <laughs> no, that's that's pretty close. The, the Autonomous Driving Systems Leaderboard Report. Um, so, you know, uh, I think I've, I've mentioned before, you know, my day job, I'm a senior analyst at Navigant Research. It's a market research firm. Um, and so, you know, we look at different uh, technology areas. I work on transportation, particularly on mobility and autonomous vehicles and connected vehicles and all this stuff. And one of the types of reports we do are these leaderboard reports where, um, you know, most of our reports, you know, involve, you know, looking at the technologies and doing market forecasts, you know, how, uh, how, how the technology is going to develop in the marketplace, how many are going to get sold and that sort of thing. But for our leaderboard reports, what we do is we look at the, the companies in a particular segment and uh, we come up with a set of criteria and we grade each of the companies that we're looking at um, based on, on these different criteria around strategy and execution. You know, so we're looking at things like the core technologies, um, their um, quality, uh, the product strategies, um, you know, production strategies, sales, marketing and distribution company staying power. I mean, how financially stable is it? And we, we look at all of that, uh, get, give a score, um, uh, zero to a hundred on, on each one of these, the, and the, um, the, you have different weightings for the different categories and then come up with an overall composite score, uh, and rank the companies, you know, from best to less than best. Um, and so, you know, for our latest one on autonomous driving systems, what we did was um, when we did this, the last time we did this one uh, in 2015, late 2015, we only looked at car makers and um, looked at who was leading uh, in the development of autonomous vehicles. Um, and the, the focus then was more on the technology. But this time around, what we did is we expanded the scope to include some other companies like some suppliers uh, and companies like Waymo and Uber and Newtonomy that aren't traditional car makers. And um, we ranked them as well. And what we were looking for overall was not just the, the core autonomous driving technology, but looking at it from a larger perspective of, you know, who's got the technology and also who can commercialize this technology, who's got the, the right strategy to actually bring it to market. Um, so you, you know, using that, that uh, as a, as a background, um, you know, over our overall number one, you know, our, our top two in the, the rankings were Ford and GM, uh, followed closely by uh, Renault, Nissan Alliance, and Daimler, uh, and uh, you know you you might think you know why you know why are these traditional car makers coming out ahead of tech companies like Waymo and uh, Uber and and <laughs> Tesla for well, that matter? In, in, indeed, um, uh, looking at at Twitter, uh, uh, f folks we know you know Alex Roy and and Dave Sullivan have both actually you know, offered some critique saying, you know, the report feels at least in their opinion to be biased toward manufacturers with infrastructure. And Dave even said that it reads like uh, the, the release about the, the leaderboard report uh, reads like um, uh, Ford bought and paid for it. So I'm not sure that that's exactly, that wasn't my impression, but uh, it definitely, you know, seeing Ford be out in front like that, uh, 
you know, you go, well, why are they out in front? Especially when all of the the press has been generated by, like you said, Silicon Valley. Um, you know, what, what apparently there's, or clearly there's other factors you guys are looking at that are determining uh, your rating for their success. Uh, you know, you're saying that Ford and GM are going to be, it, it looks like they're going to actually be a lot more successful than the companies that are generating all of the noise right now. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. You know, and uh, part of that is, you know, I think, you know, some of the keys to uh, success are going to be, you know, having control of the core technologies that make up this stuff. So that's, that's one component of it. And certainly, you know, for Waymo and also even for Tesla, you know, they're, they're doing that. They're, they're developing a lot of the stuff in house. Um, you know, Waymo has developed their complete set of sensors on their own internally um, to, uh, um, to uh, build, you know, to um, that they want to incorporate as part of their, their overall system. Um, but you know, they're not the only ones doing this, you know, Ford is, Ford has been investing, you know, they put a hundred or they put $75 million into Velodyne last year, you know, for a stake in Velodyne. They, uh, they bought a company called SAPES that, uh, an Israeli startup is doing, uh, image, image processing. Um, they, they invested in a company called civil maps. Um, you know, GM has been investing in a bunch of companies, you know, they bought cruise automation. So the, what we're seeing is the, the, the companies that are, bringing this core technology in house and we'll have the ability to, to really manage that. I think um, that's going to be one key component of success. But the other thing is you actually have to be able to make vehicles in mass reliably distribute them, service them uh, and, and provide them uh, to consumers through mobility services. And so, you know, Waymo, for example, you know, they had the best overall score as far as their technology, but, um, you know, they don't have any manufacturing capability. They're going to have to partner with somebody to actually build vehicles. Um, and that's going to be a, a big investment. Uh, so, you know, and uh, Uber, you know, same thing. They, you know, actually their core technology, you know, uh, despite the fact that they may or may not have, gotten something that uh, was designed by Waymo, uh, you know, it actually doesn't appear to be working all that well uh, based on what we've seen of late. Uh, and, you know, they don't have any manufacturing capability and, you know, for them to either build or purchase vehicles is going to be enormously expensive. And it's going to be a lot easier for companies that are actually building stuff to replicate what Uber does than the other way around. And then, you know, the, you know, one of the big questions, you know, that uh, one person in particular has been asking tonight on Twitter, um, <laughs> you know, is about Tesla. Uh, and, you know, Tesla, you know, they have some very advanced uh, technology um, for, with their autopilot system. But I think it's also much more limited than virtually every other company uh, in this ranking because they absolutely refuse to use LIDAR. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, the absence of that particular layer of sensing capability, I think, is going to be crucially important. I think I think that's going to be necessary to get the level of robustness you need to move towards full automation. I mean, Elon Musk has said their current uh, autopilot version two hardware suite will allow them to get to level five capability. And the definition of level five capability is that the vehicle can operate anytime in any weather conditions, any 
uh, any road conditions fully autonomously without a driver. I kind of doubt that that's the I, case with that lighter. And I do, I do not believe that this this generation of autopilot hardware will be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it will be able to operate fully autonomously under certain conditions, certain limited conditions, but it will never get to full autonomous capability, uh, you know, to the way other, these other systems yeah, I mean, will. I think the thing that I keep uh, coming back to is that um, automakers have been at this a really long time. And despite the fact that they are now an old line industry, I guess, when you're comparing them to, you know, Silicon Valley um they know how to build cars. They have supplier relationships. They have engineers. They know how to test. They know how to, uh, you know, validate. And they're also, they're, they're careful about when they release stuff. So part of it is that you're seeing an automaker uh, be pretty sure that their stuff is going to work. It's not going to hurt anybody. They're not going to use the public as beta testers. You've seen a lot more recklessness on the part of even Tesla releasing stuff that basically uses its, its owners as, as the test fleet. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I have never thought that that was a good idea. Um, you know, but you know, it's not my decision to make. I, you know, I would not, uh, I would not want to see, most people being beta testers for this sort of uh, this sort of capability, because I think, uh, and especially you know the way it's been talked about by many people, you know there there are there are those you know there are certain authors, certain writers uh, who can insist on calling you know autopilot as it exists today uh, self driving cars, and it's not. These are not self driving cars. They cannot drive on their own anywhere. You know they they have. You know, they're very advanced driver assist systems, but the driver still has to be well, there. That's, uh, how do we get, how do we make that point? Because it's, it's almost like a parlor trick, right? Like they, they're good enough where they, they can drive with virtually no driver involvement uh, in the right conditions. You, like, you could make a whole trip. Well, that's the key. That's the key. That's the key to it. There is the right conditions. And going back to what I talked about earlier with the BMW, there's a lot of conditions that aren't right where these systems just do not work reliably. Um, and, you know, I, I think to imply, you know, to imply that they're more capable than they really are does a disservice to consumers. And it's potentially dangerous because it leads people to believe that these systems can do things they can't. And then, People get, you know, when when people think their technology is is able to do things that it's not capable of, they start to get careless and they do they, they do things that they shouldn't be doing or they they don't pay enough attention, you know, when they're driving. And it's, I mean, it's not restricted to, you know, to, to driving. I mean, it happens in all kinds of different technologies, but particularly, you know, in in the vehicle where, you know, there's the potential for life and death. Uh, I think that it's, you know. We need to be more, we need to take more care in how we talk about these things and how we describe these things. Yeah. Well, but I mean, you're not going to make the big marketing splash if you don't say, <laughs> you know, like, and I don't know that's necessarily there's any nefarious uh, purpose out there. You know, I think also one of the other pillars of success for this, and, and you, you guys, you point out in the, the release about the, um, the leaderboard as well, is that, uh, Automakers have a sustainable business without uh, developing self-driving tech. Um, they're doing it because they're they understand where the future goes, and if you don't offer the the features, um, especially with you know, what may happen with car ownership, um, 
you know, they, they have to kind of have that stuff in the works. Uh, but they, they have the financial wherewithal to develop those systems while also running a, a business that actually makes money, uh, even though sales came out and they're a little, we're a little off right now. Um, still at like 16 something million uh, adjusted rates. Yeah, it was about 16, yeah. five. So, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's not a bad market, but it's not it's not 18, <laughs> you know, but um, it's better yeah, than 10. Exactly. Uh, but automakers are they're well poised because they they build cars at scale and they they make profits. Now they have assets to sell and they actually make something instead of some software. And and they know how to do it reliably. Well, and, and I guess too, I should um, say, which is which is something that that Tesla has also not been particularly yeah. good at. That was one of the areas where we knocked them down is on on product quality and reliability. Um, you know, <clears throat> they've had they've had a lot of issues, and you know, I think um, when the Model Three launches, if they don't have a flawless launch of that vehicle. The customers that are going to be buying that one are going to be a lot tougher on Tesla than those that, you know, pay a hundred thousand dollars or more for a model S or a model yeah, we X. We had that conversation in our back channel uh, chat today was, um, you know, the test, the, the model S and even the model X, like those are, they're sort of attainable exotics in a way. They have this cachet about them. The buyers are uh, early adopters still, um, it's a fashion piece, uh, very much like something like a, a Ferrari would be, uh, you mm -hmm. know, so your owners are apologists to a certain degree for the vehicle's shortcomings. It's not a bug. It's a feature kind of thing, you know, and, and they're just, yeah. they're willing to, well, you know, and, you know, going, going right back to the beginning of this episode, you know, talking about, you know, Toyota and, and the Sienna, you know, the, and, you know, Camry, Camry and Corolla are great examples. I mean, between those two, you know, that's 700,000 yeah. units a year, every year that that they sell just in the United States. You know, and then, uh, you know, probably another, um, you know, half a million or more globally of those at least. Um, you know, so, you know, that's, you know, every year, you know, Toyota is selling just those two models they're selling, you know, 10 times as many as, um, as Tesla has in their best years. And, you know, the reason people buy those, they're not exciting. They're not exotics, but they work every day. You get in, you put in the key, you press the start button, you put it in drive right. and you go and it gets you where you want to be. Every, like everything works and it's super, it's super yes. benign. Uh, it's, it's reliable. They hold up, you know, it's all of those, all of those superlatives about Toyota. They're not, they're not exciting. Like you say, they're not sexy, but uh, that's so hard to do. Um, and, and they cost what, 20, $25,000. You can get a Camry. You can get a really, yeah. really nice Corolla for that. <laughs> you know, like uh, you, Tesla's going to have a real tough problem because that's a different buyer. You know, that's, that's not the, the apologist buyer. And you would think that somebody buying a $25,000 electric car would go, Oh yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, I'm going to miss out on some stuff, but that's not how it works. It, it's actually inverse of how you'd expect the person buying the really expensive one is willing to put up with some pain and they have other cars and they like, it's just, it doesn't really mess with their life that much. But the person buying the $25,000 electric car expects it to work just like a Camry all the time. And that's, that's not yep. 
that's not where it's at yet. It, I'm glad that Tesla's going there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I give Tesla huge credit, you know, for pushing the industry forward, um, you know, both on electrification and on automation. Uh, but I'm, I still remain unconvinced that they can execute at the level that's going to be needed for them to become a profitable and sustainable business as a car maker. And that's where they lost a bunch of points on this ranking. That's why they, you know, they came out so low, you know, I think 12, 12th place uh, out of 18 companies in this ranking. You know, they lost on things like that and things like quality and reliability and, and sustainability as a business. Yeah. So, and if somebody wants to know more, I don't want to give away the whole report now. I mean, there's certainly lots of, <laughs> lots of info yeah. in it. Um, so, but, you know, it's, it's available from Navigant if you wanted to, uh, to go check it out. Uh, for, well. for a modest fee. Yes. For a modest, always a modest fee. Yes. Um, and, you know, uh, this is, this is a tech heavy episode. Uh, I wanted to just sort of, uh, introduce a new project I have. Uh, so one of the things I really like about the crown Victoria <laughs> is how low tech it is. Um, it's delightful in the sense that it's such a dumb car. It has what one or two computers in it. It has the engine management and the ABS computer. And I think that's about it. Uh, there's there's um, probably a few more, but you know, I mean, th those are the, the main ones, the powertrain sure. and chassis computer. Oh yeah. There's, there's probably a transmission computer too. And uh, yeah, but power, I guess that would be, Tied together power. Depends on how they did it. I, I think what year is yours? 99. Yeah, I think I think it's got a combined powertrain controller that manages the engine and the and the transmission. Yeah, that would be my guess. Uh but this there's not it's not you know, there's no serial bus communication in this car or anything. It's 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 pretty pretty basic. Um that's great as far as it goes. Nostalgia is okay. Um I live in a really rich radio market. And even at that, you know, point, um, I, I sometimes wind up going, man, I've, this car would really be great if it had, you know, an ability to play podcasts or, uh, you know, like phone calls, um, with Bluetooth, that would also be excellent. And, you know, it has a cassette deck, so I could get one of those little Bluetooth cassette adapter things. And, and I guess I could do that, but they sound bad. Uh, and, um, I, I got a, a press release from a company. Uh, it was the Epsilon group of companies and they make a bunch of uh, aftermarket audio stuff, uh, performance power and uh, a, a couple of other brands as well. Power acoustic. Um, so it's so like low to high end. Uh, they introduced a new line of uh, radios. And so I, I reached out and I said, Hey, uh, that's really interesting. Uh, do you have one I can try out? So they sent me one and I'm going to install it in the, the crown victoria and we'll try it out and, and see how it does uh putting some some touches of modern technology into the the old vehicle because that's that's an area that um you know this modern tech actually it is useful and you don't realize it even when you're a cranky old guy like me until you miss it until it's not there and you know the, the bluetooth phone is actually i feel that that's a safety feature uh so i'm not holding the phone up to my head <laughs> trying to drive like no it absolutely know, is I mean, I'm, I don't necessarily talk on the phone all the time when I drive. Uh, there are a lot of people who do. <laughs> um, but when I do need to make or take a call, it's really handy to just be able to drive and, and at least have my hands on the wheel. Um, I'm still being distracted by the phone, but that's a different story. 
so yeah, uh, I'm going to make a video or two, write up some, some info and I, it may be interesting to people and sort of how you, how you can benefit from some of this technology, getting more widespread and cheaper, uh, even if you're not upgrading your car. So how, how much does that uh, head unit cost? I think it's actually, uh, pretty inexpensive. Um, the one that they sent is the NS651, which is one, it's one of their new ones. Uh, so it's like a 300 watt head unit, which is pretty powerful. Uh, I think it's under 200 bucks. Wow. Actually. Um, I, I could be That's, wrong on that. I will, I will get all the specs, but it's not that expensive. Yeah, that, that, that is pretty reasonable um, because, you know, uh, last year or the year before I tried out um, one of pioneers uh, head units that they offer that has, it's an aftermarket unit uh, that's got um, Android auto and Apple CarPlay support in it. It was the first aftermarket unit to available that had both of those in there. And, you know, the Android auto and, and CarPlay, you know, worked fine. It you know, worked, worked about the same as on uh, any of the, the OEM systems. Um, and and in fact, uh, it was available before almost any of the OEM systems were out there. Uh, but the the rest of the unit itself, you know, I mean, the the least expensive one, uh, the one that I tried was about seven hundred dollars, and the, the screen in the thing was just terrible. You know, it was a resistive touch screen, and um, it you know it was had low contrast and. Uh, you know, when, when light hit it, you know, from almost any angle, you had a lot of glare and it was very hard to see. Yeah. Um, this also has a touch screen. So that's, that's one of the things I want to see is like, how, how dim can I get the screen at night as well? Uh, that's a big point of contention for me. Uh, I feel like there's too much light pollution in, uh, in cabins. Um, so this is the, yeah, it's the Nisa 651 NS 651, it's a double din six and a half inch screen i it starts at 150 I, and i don't know if i have i'll have to look um i may have the model with navigation uh which is obviously going to be a little, little higher price but yeah it, it starts at 150 so we'll see um but again it's it's like uh this stuff's getting cheap and uh it's still pretty functional so um I'm I'm curious. Yeah, I'll I'll be curious to see how well that one works out. I mean, you know, there's there's a, a several brands out there now. You know, and most of the big uh, aftermarket audio companies, you know, Kenwood, Alpine, and uh, JVC, all the other ones, they all have touchscreen units. You know, and even 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 basic head units that you know don't have touchscreens, you know, still have physical controls. You know, everything, pretty much everything now except for like the, the dirt cheapest ones have at least Bluetooth capability. Um, and, you know, in most cases, you know, when, when with the Bluetooth, you know, it's usually got play, pause, fast forward, reverse buttons, you know, so if you've got your phone connected to it via Bluetooth and you're listening to a podcast or listening to some music, you can, you know, tap on the, on the, uh, the head unit uh, to play pause and reverse. Uh, you know, I've, I've had, uh, in my wife's car, um, when the original uh, factory radio died a couple of years ago, <clears throat> I put uh, a Pioneer, you know, uh, like a hundred and twenty dollar Pioneer head unit in there, and you know, it's it's it has all that capability, and as do most of them now. Yeah, and like that's the thing is, it's actually 
aftermarket it's, it's tough to shop for an aftermarket head unit these days because a lot of them are really garish and like difficult to use oh yeah um, tell me about all, it they all have a lot of functionality even the lowest price ones have pretty much everything you'd need or want and i was originally thinking of a, a single din unit um because they 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 can't force you to use the touch screen uh so they have to have the physical buttons uh, but the they problem, have they have physical din they have single din units with touch screens now too yeah um there are I I have been out of this aftermarket thing for a while and like looking at the the just the the level of sophistication that you can buy in aftermarket audio and technology for your cars is, is astounding. It's come quite a long way in let's say 10 15 years. Um but yeah, the 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 I could get a nice cheap single in with the you know, I was looking at tuner sensitivity performance cuz that's again, I'm an old man so I listen to radio even AM <laughs> so uh all those things are Im- they still important. have radio yeah yeah radio am's badass man am broadcast in class a um <laughs> I'm, it may not be class a anymore but uh yeah am transmitters are no joke um but th- that's a completely different sidetrack that i'm not going to take tonight uh so yeah stay tuned i'll be making some some videos and some stuff with that uh I think the last thing we should touch on, because we're, I mean, we're, we're talking about it already, really, is uh, Tesla's valuation, uh, which is probably kind of high for a company that doesn't make any profit. Irrational exuberance. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. Well, it was on the list, so I wanted to just cover it. Um, we did. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are some questions. Um, did you have any, any teed up? I have one. Uh, uh facebook i think we we had two right we had uh there was the ev question and yeah. and then uh uh we had a uh let's um let's hit the uh let's hit that one first and then we'll finish up with uh with dan's question all right well this one came in uh via facebook uh says dan sam i'm interested in good electric cars i'd be really interested in a good electric pickup as as would i um electric minivans as well uh, but how would the grid handle widespread electrification? Uh, I just signed up for electric bill credits for decreasing my use during peak hours this summer in suburban Michigan. What kind of burden will that put on the system in areas that already might be prone to brownout? What's the scope of additional infrastructure needed if we all go electric? Well, you know, if you if you ask the utilities, they will almost all say we've got plenty of capacity. We can we can handle, you know huge numbers of EVs. And, and I, I think and, that's true. Yeah. And for, for the most part, yeah. But you know, that doesn't necessarily apply 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Um, there are times, you know, when there's peak loads, when you definitely don't want to be plugging in your vehicle, at least not until some point in the future when we, you know, actually get vehicle to grid implemented. But um, that's a whole nother story, but yeah, I mean, I think most utilities can, can definitely handle it, especially if you're charging at night, um, you know, which is, you know, what's generally recommended for home charging because that's, that's the off peak times. That's, you know, when there's the least amount of load on the system. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's why my, my dishwasher has a delay start time kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, as well, you know, the, and you've, you've run your, your washer and dryer that like that. Yes. That's been a trick for a long time as you get the off peak hours. Yeah. And, and pretty, pretty much all EV, you know, modern EVs, you know, will let you, um, schedule, 
you know, when you want, you know, you, you plug it in, you know, pull into the garage and plug it in. Um, and then you can schedule it to actually start charging, you know, at some specified time when it's, when your utility switches to off peak rates, you know, and in, in a lot of cases, uh, you can do that manually. There are some vehicles that, uh, I don't know if they still do it. I know at, uh, when Ford first launched, uh, their plugins, the, the Focus Electric and the um, the Fusion and C-Max plug-in hybrids, they had a program, um, I can't remember who it was now, but you know the, their system would actually go out uh, and contact a database you know, based on your location and find the local utility. So basically it would do it automatically. So you just tell it you know, to do, uh, I think they called it value charging or something. Um, you know, and, and there, I think there were a couple of other OEMs that had something similar as well. So, you know, you can, you can check, you know, on different vehicles for that, but at the very least you can always do it manually and almost all of them have an app that'll let you do that. So you can set the time you want it to charge. So that's not, that part isn't a problem where things can get dicey, um, is, you know, if you do live in an area that is, um, that does get a lot of brownouts. Uh, getting an EV might not be a great idea right now until your local utility gets that resolved. I mean, you know, we had a huge windstorm that came through Southeast Michigan a couple of weeks ago, you know, knocked out power to over a million households, um, you know, across, across Michigan. It was, uh, DTE's biggest, um, you know, uh, biggest, uh, outage ever aside from, you know, the, the, the massive, Northeast blackout of was it 2003? Uh, uh, yeah, something like yeah. that. That was that was a big one. Yeah, I, I remember that. But you know, this this was the the biggest one ever. You know, caused by um, caused by you know uh, weather, and you know a lot of people were without power for you know four or five days before they got it restored. So you know, if if you live in an area that is prone to a lot of brownouts or or outages. I would recommend, uh, you know, if you do want an EV, get some solar panels too. That's, that's the one way you can be sure that you're going to, that you're not going to be putting load on the grid and, you know, you know, at least you're, you know, aside from, you know, what it costs you for the, the panels, um, you know, you're not going to be paying any extra to charge your vehicle. Right. And, you know, the, the issue with solar panels is they work when the sun's shining. Um, so, uh, if you're not charging during the daytime, you're still going to be drawing off the grid at this point. Um, if you charge, well, unless, night, so, unless you have batteries, you know, right. If, if you have storage, that's a yeah. different story. Um, if you're charging it at night, you're still, you're not going to have any problem with the, the electric credits for decreasing your, your peak hour use until, unless and until at some point when everybody has EVs in some utopian future, um, the nighttime charging hours become the peak hours because everybody's charging because uh, yeah. that could happen. Uh, although I highly doubt it will actually happen. Um, there will be additional infrastructure necessary if we, we go all electric. I mean, even now there's additional infrastructure and upkeep needed even without electric cars. You know, the, the Northeast power grid, uh, as an example, you know, we talked about it earlier. Um, it's old. And, uh, you know, we've got this this large scale, slow, steady grid that's designed for, uh, you, you know, uh, generation in 
somewhat remote areas. You know, the, the generation stations are, are large and they're located away from, from populations for the most part. Uh, you know, they're definitely not in the middle of the city. Um, so they, the power needs to be transmitted. And, and so that's how our system is set up now. And we buy power from Canada and we, we move things around. Um, and the, you know, adding solar to the grid will help. It can help. The problem, again, is, is storage. And what happens to the grid uh, to freak it out is anything sudden. It's a slow, steady thing. Um, they just want to be, you know, at their demand with, you know, nothing freaking it out. Um, what took out the Northeast in 2003 was there were some tree branches that sagged into some, some uh, transmission lines and took those transmission lines out with the generators went over speed. So they shut down and it's just at that point, it's a cascade and it, it took a couple of days to bring everything back up again once they found the problem, fixed it. And, you know, that was actually just a maintenance thing. That was um, uh, corporate interests had bought into, you know, because power is a big thing. Uh, they had cut back their budgets on, you know, say, uh, trimming the trees. No, <laughs> you must be yeah. joking, Dan. Yeah. They would never uh, do something like that, would they? Yeah, yeah, they would. Um, and I will say I have a very good source inside the uh, the, <laughs> the the power industry um, who talks about it with me from time to time. And just the amount of skin flint operations that are there with. Um, uh, and and just in case stations. anyone from Navigant is listening, it's not me. No, it is not you. Um, <laughs> I don't think anybody in his company listens either. Um, and I'm not identifying his company. He's worked for a couple, uh, but uh, it's my brother and um, <laughs> he works in nuclear power. And uh, yeah, just uh, and, and even here in, in Massachusetts, we have one nuke station still uh, Pilgrim. They're going to shut it down. And it's it, it from all I just pick up on the news is just like it's uh you know, it's another one of those things that's poorly managed and the, you know, cost cutting has gotten to the point where, you know, we'll, we'll replace stuff that breaks, uh, but we won't do as much preventive. You know, you try to do as much preventive on an outage as you can uh, because the plant's down and it's costing money. But anyway, I have again gotten us off track. <laughs> um, the the grid, is your specialty. Think, well, yes, I think the grid uh, sort of uh, adding capacities is that's coming. There's been a lot of really interesting stuff with batteries. Uh, we were actually talking again in the back channel. There's a, a battery company that's that's come up with basically batteries made out of dirt. Um, and they, so they're much less expensive. Uh, I don't think they're really going to work really well in a car, but as but for a stationary scale, storage, though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, that, that sounds really that, promising. You know, I mean, not, you know, you can have different kinds of batteries for different applications, obviously. And, you know, in a car, you want, you know, much higher energy density um, and capacity than than you would for uh, stationary storage. But, you know, for uh, for, you know, storing the energy from a large solar or wind installation, you know, it doesn't matter how big it is, really. And that's that's the key, even even storing energy from a from freaking coal or from a hydro, uh, you know, setup is uh, important um, because it, it just smooths out the peaks and valleys of of uh, demand and supply. It's a, really there is there is no more real time uh, industry than the generation and transmission of electric power. <laughs> and, you know, the the, tr the traditional ways of, of producing power or producing electricity, at least, um, you know, from uh from fossil fuels uh from hydro you know hydroelectric you can manage it manage the output a little better but uh from fossil fuels you know 
you tend to not want to spin those up and spin them down. You know, you want to keep them running steady. And so when you've got overcapacity or, or undercapacity, that's when you start running into problems. Um, and, you know, I think that this is a topic I think we can come back to at some point, you know, have a talk about vehicle to grid infrastructure um, because there's some interesting stuff there that, that could help uh, eventually. All right. Well, we also burned about 15 minutes on one question, so let's let's finish off with the other. OK, uh, this one, this one should be quick. Uh, Dan uh, asked on, on Facebook, uh, it's cars and coffee season now, uh, at least in warmer climes. Uh, do you two ever go to cars and coffee? Dan, no, I hate people. I hate people. No, <laughs> I, I, I do occasionally, um, you know, where I live uh, near Ann Arbor, um, the 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 big cars and coffee around here is uh, at uh, Past Diners uh, AutoZone Hobbies in uh, in Birmingham, which is uh, about a forty five minute to an hour drive away from me. Um, so you know it's a bit of a haul, you know, especially you know to get there at eight o'clock on a Saturday morning. And so you know if the weather's really nice out and I have something interesting to drive, uh, I will do that. Otherwise, you know, I just stay in bed. <laughs> I also have uh, you, you. You have the flexibility to do it. My, I have, I have kids who are. Yeah, my my kids are gone, so I I can do it whenever I feel like. Yeah, um, they. I also discovered they're not real fans of car shows. So you get waking up early and car show together. I, yeah, it's just they're they're not ready yet. I, so, I take my dog. Yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah. My. I should try that. My dog is the favorite one. If I had the dog before I had kids, I would not have had kids. <laughs> um, so I think we've killed a podcast because it's been like, a you know, a, a, we've got a nice pithy collection of, of topics and we should give it a rest. For OK, uh, um, so, yeah. Uh, what Facebook, uh, please reach out, continue to reach out. That's great. Um, share with your friends, uh, you know, help us out. Give us some 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 shouts and and uh share the podcast so that we can build our listener base because uh it's fun to do and it's fun to hear from everyone so definitely hit us up with comments there uh you can find us at uh wheel bearings cast no vowels except for the a on twitter um you are sam abuel samad on uh twitter i am boston underscore auto uh i think those are all the ways to find us easily and i'm Probably yeah, something. pretty much. Uh, uh, let's see what else. Uh, well, I'll be in New York next week uh, for the auto show, and uh, we'll try and record something from there. I, I don't think Dan's going to be able to make it down, but I was going to try, but uh, yeah. Yeah, no, something blew up. So well, we'll we'll get we'll get something recorded for you next week from New York uh, with uh, the news of of what everybody's uh, announcing there, and uh, talk to you then. All right. Have a good night, everyone. See ya. Right. That was a good one. That was a good one. I actually planned ahead. It was actually helpful to write that thing about. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.